thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. I'm Pastor Lyle, and we've been praying for you, praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we're here to serve, so please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way that we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage you throughout the week. Join me now as we continue this study in the book of Mark. Well, good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? Good. It's great to have you. Welcome to those who may be uh, here for the first time or here for the first time in a long time. Some, some friends and uh, family members, volunteers for camp and all kinds of uh, a busy busyness of life these days and uh, exciting days. Uh, but welcome is great to be able to worship together. And now we get into the word together. You know, there's something different uh, about meeting somebody face to face. Have any of you ever had an experience of being able to meet somebody um, that, that for, for all purposes, would be somebody that would be considered a, a famous person, a famous person? You, anybody out there, you'd say, I've, I've met somebody. Put your hands up high. I'd like to know how many, how many people have met famous people, okay? Awesome. All right. Now, you can put your hands down. Who would be willing to tell us all who the famous person was that you actually met? Go ahead. Who's that? Because I don't know. <laughs> What's her name? Michaela... Michaela Schifrin. How many know Michaela Schifrin? Okay, and they're all they're all under a certain age, probably too. Uh, athlete, famous skier. Ah, okay. Law of deduction by the Smith family. Law of deduction. Uh, anybody else? So you met somebody famous? George Steinbrenner. Ooh, that's a. Anybody else met George Steinbrenner? No, no. All the hands. Are. Okay, somebody else that you met somebody? Ruthie. Pete Rose. Ooh, should we in the Hall of Fame? That's a debate for another day. Scotty. Paul Tuttle. Oh, yeah, Orange County Choppers. Larry in the back, I see that hand. Ooh, that's, that's a big one. That's a big one. All right, Bill. How many have no idea who he's talking about? Okay, so, all right, last one, last one right here. Or, or Chuck, and then right behind you. Go ahead, Chuck. Wow. Wow. See, this is starting some really great conversation for our meal afterwards when we're all up. Like, and now we get to go around and find out how, how was the meeting, what was it like. And the last one right behind you there, Chuck. Joe Namath. Joe Namath. Wow. So some pretty interesting, some pretty interesting characters, right? Isn't there something different about when you, you, so most of us know who most of those people are, right? Especially when we're talking Pelé, John Wayne, right? Like uh, even the youngest would at least have an idea of of who some of those people are because they're they're that famous, they're that well-known. Isn't there something different about just seeing somebody like at a distance or through TV, you hear them on the radio or whatever it is, so different when you actually meet them face to face? Something significant changes when you actually get to be in the presence of somebody versus you just see their likeness, you hear their voice and, and whatnot. It's different, right? So uh, you may not remember what this specific famous day was, but Friday, November 19th, 2004. This was known as Malice in the Palace. 
here. Uh, this is uh, uh, the big fight that broke out in the Palace uh, where the Detroit Pistons play. They were playing against the Pacers. And uh, who became known as, you changed his name to Meta World Peace, a little while later, okay, was Ron Artest, who was the instigator of, of all of this malice in the palace. And so uh, most of you probably, well, maybe not, maybe some of you uh, remember back to 2004 uh, when malice in the palace happened. It was the biggest, the biggest fight that's ever happened in the history of the NBA. It went into the crowd. Uh, fans were on the court throwing punches. I mean, it was, it was a total melee. It was, it was crazy. Uh, well, one week earlier, Becky and I were helping run the Super Bowl uh, down in Philadelphia. And so you can go to the next picture. So it's different when you meet somebody in person. So that's Nick Barker. Some of you know Nick. But Becky took that picture of Ron Artest one week prior to the Malice in the Palace. So when you actually meet someone face-to-face, like all of you that have ever been connected, you knew about the fight, the brawl, it happened and stuff, and, and it's just like there's a distance, uh, distance between you and the people. Or it, It's different. When you actually come into the presence of someone, you meet them face-to-face, it changes. When the next week we saw what had happened, it was all the, all the boys that were on the basketball team were life that year that went and helped, uh, like Nick, were like mind-blown. Like we just stood with him. And now uh, it, it changes your perspective when you actually meet somebody face-to-face. Being face-to-face uh, changes everything. When you actually get face-to-face with someone. I mean, what are some of the things that, you, you know, like all this, I mean, for instance, in our, in our social media uh, culture has changed a lot of that. I mean, how many things have been said to you, or maybe you've actually said yourself that probably wouldn't have been said if you were face-to-face, right? Face-to-face changes a lot of different things, changes your perspective on many things. It, it, uh, it, it gives you a, a very different perspective. Well, as we open up this study in the book of Mark, uh, we are, are week number two. Last week, Pastor Dave gave the intro to the book of Mark, and so I'd encourage you to go back. If you're going to be with us for a while going through the book, go back and listen to the intro to Mark. Uh, but today, we are in the very first chapter in starting the book of Mark. And so you can turn in your Bibles there now if you'd like, because uh, we're going to be sitting right in the first chapter. But as we go through this study, uh, my heart for the book of Mark is that we would, um, we would do justice to how the book makes you come face to face with Jesus. The Gospels do that, Mark a little differently than the others. Um, it is so important that in all of our lives, we do something with Jesus. Those who have had a personal, and you've heard me say this before, if you've had a personal interaction with Jesus, it changes everything. And so throughout the book, all the people you'll see over and over. In fact, there's 15 different specific personalities that you see that come face to face with Jesus who follow him. And there are many others who reject him. In the book of Mark, it's more about the works than the words of Jesus. Mark, as we learned last week, was written to Uh, Roman or Gentile audience, more of the outsider, not the religious, didn't grow up in Sunday school, memorizing portions of the scripture audience. The language in Mark is is very emotive. 
It's a very, at times, it's extremely abrupt. We see immediately, immediately, and, and there's, there's words that are, are exceptionally emotive about Jesus in relationship to Jesus. And so as we go throughout the book and starting today, the question really is, what are you going to do with Jesus? The reactions through the book regarding Jesus are not neutral. So today I would challenge you that as you're sitting there maybe in a place where you're trying as best as you can as regards to Jesus to be neutral. I'm just not going to make much of a decision is actually making a decision regarding Jesus. There were strong reactions, not neutral reactions. People in the book of Mark were angry at Jesus, but also amazed and in awe of Jesus. Some wanted to fight him while others followed him and put their faith in him. And then, just like today, many rejected him, but many received him. And as I said, 15 different personalities that we'll see as we go throughout the book, as we, as we go through chapter by chapter, those who came face to face with Jesus. And if you had met them on the street, you would have thought probably, there's no way that that person's going to follow this, this rabbi prophet, but they follow him. In the very first chapter of Mark, starting in verse 1, it says, This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And please follow along in your copy of the scriptures, whatever it is today. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began. I'm reading today out of the New Living Translation. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began. It's kind of a funny ending for verse 1, and it it will continue in a second into uh, who John the Baptist is, and and it goes on with the story. But that first chunk of scripture, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, it began. And it kind of hangs a little bit. Good news. The gospel. Uh, It's the word euagalion. Uh, Those who've studied scripture and the gospel, it's a familiar word to you. Some of you just heard a word that you didn't even know that I said a word. You just thought it was something foreign and just sounded really strange. Euagalion. But to the readers, they, they would have had an immediate connection to Euagalion. Both the Jewish and the Gentile. Remember, written to the Gentile, to the outsider, the not the church person. But, of course, both groups are reading it uh, for, for a, a long time moving forward. It wasn't going to end up being just a non-Jewish red book, of course. So both groups of people would have a, a different understanding or insight into what that word meant. We think of that word as always translated in a good news or the gospel. So is Mark just saying, this is the good news? This is the gospel about Jesus the Messiah. Is he saying like, hey, welcome, welcome to my book, the gospel of Mark? You know, is that really what he's saying? No, it's not. But it is a word that means good news, joyous message, glad tidings, kind of in its simplest form. The Jewish people would have immediately thought, as they heard or read and saw the word euagalion, they would have thought of Isaiah 52. Many passages, but one of the famous ones would have been Isaiah 52, um, where there's the description of, uh, there's multiple future uh, looks ahead, and and 
the ending of the Babylonian captivity would have happened and the, the Jewish people would have come back to Jerusalem. They would have built the temple. Uh, the spirit of God would, would come back and there would be a, uh, essentially the, the theocracy of, the, of Israel, the nation of Israel, would, would be happening again. And, and God would essentially not physically be on the throne, but he would be leading again. And so as they looked ahead from Isaiah uh, 52, they would have had an understanding of the king is going to be leading again. But it also let, looked ahead to a future time where there's a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus physically does come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. There is a euagalion, is the looking ahead at the ascension of the king who is coming or is on his way. The Romans very similarly would have listened or read that word. And just prior to this, there would have been an inscription that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus on the day of his birthday. And within that, there's the word euagalion, which talks about this amazing ascension to his rule as emperor Caesar Augustus. And in that inscription, there's talk of him being a little G God. He's going to bring peace and, and, and war. And, uh, and it even uses the word salvation, very similar to what would be described about Jesus being the Messiah. So both groups of readers would have read it and immediately had this connection to more of that ascension of a king coming to rule and to reign. They would see it as a word signifying the arrival maybe of a new monarch. It would signify the, the arrival of a new era, a new era which would bring, the, would bring order and peace and salvation and blessing. Both the Jewish readers from the book of Isaiah reading about uh, the coming of the Messiah and also the Roman readers thinking of just their own human leaders and royalty, they would have had this connection to more kingship, monarchy, uh, bringing in and ushering this new era. So look at the verse again in light of that change. This is the euagalion, the good news, the gospel, but with that context in mind about who? Jesus the Messiah, Son of God. Jesus would be earthly name, right? His earthly name, his human name. In the Hebrew, it's Yehoshua, Yehoshua. Yahweh is salvation. That would be his name. Uh, Matthew 1, 21, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it's Jesus. That's the human connection to the person. But it goes on to his title, which is Messiah, or your version that you're reading today might say Christ. Messiah or Christ. It is the same. It means the anointed one. The anointed one. It is a royal title when God himself is declaring that this is the anointed one. It is a very kingly name to declare that he is the anointed by God king, Jesus Messiah, Christ but then it goes into his lineage. Who is he? He is the son of God. Over 50 times in the Gospels, he's declared to be the son of God. He is one in nature with God, both co-eternal and co-equal with God. We sometimes maybe, uh, again, like as the outsider, you may look and think of it being like, is he the offspring? It's not has nothing to do with offspring of God. He is the co-eternal and co-equal with God. And so Mark is essentially, he's introducing us to the beginning of the history of King Jesus, Son of God. 
the end of the sentence in the New Living, it adds that it begins at the end rather than some of the other translations where it's in the beginning or this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Messiah, Son of God. Something new is happening. It's a beginning of something different. Again, a new era, the ushering in in of something that has not been there before. In John 1, 49, Nathan says to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The new king has arrived and he's on the scene and something new is happening with this new king. Now, as the readers, the Roman readers would have heard it, they would have been thinking, okay, so you're just announcing, you're letting it be known that a new king has arrived. Something new is beginning in this, this potential kingship that would be coming with this person, Jesus, who you're saying is the son of God and anointed by God as this Messiah king. And what does he do? This is the beginning of this, and, and some would say this would be the, the, the passage that kind of starts the earthly ministry of Jesus, because Mark starts immediately announcing who Jesus is, then it goes into John the Baptist and his baptism. So this is the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So it begins, it begins, and now in the very next verse, John announced, uh, sorry, forgive me, uh, the very next verse, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Now, let me, let me make this statement before we look at the Isaiah and what he's saying about Isaiah. As we go ahead and, and we continue in the book of Mark, he's declared at the very, very first verse, this deity, son of God. And as we go through the book, he, he reveals his divineship, that he is the divine king. In the first half of the book, it's his words and his works that prove his divine kingship, who he is as the son of God, Messiah. The end of the book, as we get there, he proves that divine kingship with his death and his resurrection. But how cool that right in the dead center of the book, Peter is exclaiming very famously, you are the anointed one, right in the middle between him showing and revealing through his words and his works, through his death and his resurrection, right in the middle, Peter brings to light, and, and, and again, just as Nathan did in the passage I read a few seconds ago, you are the king. You are exactly who you claim to be. Over and over and over in the book of Mark and here today, you're coming to face with Jesus. Is he who he claims he says that he is? Is he exactly who he declares him to be? So now, verse 2, just as, it's beginning, it's beginning just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So the first part, it talks about uh, that it's an Isaiah prophecy. And uh, many times it's common for uh, the prophet to be named, but it's the, the major prophet of multiple passages of Scripture that are prophetic. So in this, he says Isaiah, just as Isaiah wrote, but then the first half is actually not Isaiah. It's Malachi chapter uh, 3, verse 1. 
when he says that, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Then the second part is the Isaiah portion. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Now, interesting note in that first part of that, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. If you go back to Malachi and you look at the context of what's being said there that he's quoting from, he's interpreting into uh, Mark, essentially God is saying there, that the king who is coming is the king uh, and the king who my messenger is announcing. So he's saying there's this messenger who's going to announce me and it's my king. But in the verbiage in Malachi 3, he actually declares that the king is me who my messenger is going to be declaring and telling about. It's me. So God himself is is preemptively letting the the readers know that when this king when this messiah the anointed one jesus shows up he's god so don't miss it the messenger is telling ahead of time the about the king that is actually god himself who's coming uh, and they need to declare that he is coming the messenger now this messenger in isaiah says he's a voice shouting in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord's coming Clear the road for him. Isaiah 40. He doesn't start the book of Mark with prophecies about Jesus, like we would see maybe genealogies and prophecies that we see in, like, in Matthew and in Luke, right? He doesn't talk about Jesus. He doesn't give prophecies to, to, to uh, lead Jewish readers into uh, what's going on with this Messiah and to kind of give proof text to who he is. No, he talks about a prophecy that has to do with the forerunner, the, the announcer, the herald, the, the one who goes before Jesus. Now, I didn't connect this until studying this over these last few months. The Romans, who are the readers primarily, would have been listening to the beginning, to the Euagelion. Uh, they would have been listening to that in hearing there's a king coming. There's a king coming, and it's Jesus and you're saying that Jesus, this king, is actually God king, that God has declared him to be king. Now, that would immediately trigger a response in them because if there is this, this king coming, then preceding a king coming would always be some sort of messenger or movement that would make way for the king. It could even uh, be because there's going to be this entourage that's going to come with a king. So you might actually have to build roads, build bridges, and prepare the way for that king to come. So as the Roman readers are listening, they don't need a prophecy about Messiah. They're being told, hey, in God's plan, there's always been a, a, a way maker, a preparer for this king. And we're letting you know that this has always been a part of God's plan. And now here, he's going to be introduced to you. Now in verse 4, this messenger, you already know who it is, right? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness. He preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Verse 5, all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. The food he ate was locust and wild honey. Sounds amazing, right? What a life. Everybody wants to be like John the Baptist today, right? Right? We're all like, man, sign me up for, for John the Baptist camp. John the Baptist, okay? Not his last name. 
He wasn't the first Baptist, just in case there's anybody here that might have thought is that, is, that John was the very first Baptist. No, no. In fact, it, it would be more understood as John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. It's because there's a lot of Johns. There's probably a few Johns in here today. Okay, you've got to distinguish what John are we talking about. It's not John the Carpenter. It's not John the, the Pottery Maker, John the Blacksmith. It's John the Baptizer. It's what he was known for, distinguished by at the time. Because back then, uh, baptizing was not like, even if you didn't grow up in church, somebody talks about baptism, and, and a picture comes into your mind. Whether it's uh, baby baptism or being baptized and you know, the baptistry that, that it's actually still behind this wall, uh, or baptized down at the beach in the water. There's, there's a picture that comes to mind about baptism because it's just it's so much more part of a culture. Honestly, it wasn't a significant part of the culture. Uh, even in the Jewish culture, the only baptisms that would have happened like John was doing at the time, um, baptism by immersion, actually putting somebody completely under the water and pulling them back up, uh, within Judaism, it only would have been for uh, someone who is uh, a proselyte, who would have came out of whatever their form of worship was prior, but now they've declared, I want to worship the one true God. Well, if they were not Jewish and they were Gentile, they would actually be baptized by immersion, and that would be that proselyte baptism. But other than that, there was no baptism. Like, there was no churches and no baptistries and all of that. So it, it, it would have been easy easy to declare like this is the guy who's baptizing people in the Jordan River and everybody would have known exactly who it is that they're talking about. Of course, he's also the guy that dresses in camel hair and eats locusts and honey, which could have also been a distinguishing thing, uh, but that wasn't part of his name. John the baptizer. According to John chapter 3, he's about 25, 30 miles south of the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan. Luke chapter 1 would explain that his life was spent in the wilderness, okay? We've got some wilderness people here today. In fact, I just read that uh, a show that we've watched, I think, maybe one season of a while ago, Alone. You actually watched that with your brother up in Canada, right around the corner from your house. So that, that show alone, which I, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't even have talked about the show alone. I'm not even sure. We watched one season. It was very interesting. It's you get dropped off all alone out in the middle of a very tough environment. And, uh, and a lady from, I think, over North Creek area I just saw is going to be in the next uh, series of Alone. Uh, this man was that kind of person where he was just a wilderness guy grew up and lived in the desert. So when you are that kind of person, I mean, we, uh, I used to joke about when we first started coaching, uh, when we moved here in 2013, started coaching a school, um, all of a sudden there was a day for, I think it was maybe modified basketball or something, all of a sudden none of the kids were there for practice after school. I'm like, what in the world is going on? They're like, oh, it's the first day of hunting season. Like, it's rifle season. Like, what, what, what are you even confused about? Like, everybody is in the woods. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so then I was the outsider. I'm like, why am I not in the woods? What is wrong with me? So, but that's the kind of person we're talking about. Like he is, according to Luke 1, his life was spent there. This is who he is. Now, Mark, in his passage, leaves a lot of stuff out regarding John the Baptist, like his miraculous conception, that the Holy Spirit brought about this conception because his parents were, were far long past barren age. And so there's a miraculous conception. He's a relative of Jesus. Uh, and, and the scripture says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit all the way since he was in the womb. 
some major details, right, that Mark just kind of keeps on moving, like, let's go, nothing to see here, let's keep, let's keep going because we need to look at Jesus, not look at everybody else. It's a little bit of the style, I feel like, it, that Mark writes with. But Matthew 11, verse 11, that's one to definitely write down this morning, Jesus says he's the greatest man that ever lived up until his time. Why would that be? I think because he was given a, the, maybe the greatest of responsibilities that a man ever had to point to the Messiah to announce this new king. Verses 4 and 5 again says, This messenger, it was John the Baptist, was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. I like the translation. I, I, growing up, and I remember my very first uh, theology classes in college dealt with the Greek structure that some of your Bibles you're reading now says for the remission of sins, giving the reader the implication that, wait, is, is baptism uh, in order for a regeneration to happen, that I'm saved because of baptism? And you can read it. This is a great translation of this, that... Uh, they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Those people chose to be baptized, and John was calling them to be baptized because of a decision that they already made, a response to God that had already happened. It was because of their forgiveness of sins and, and, and repentance that they were baptized. You see, this man didn't build any physical bridges or roads. He was building spiritual ones into the hearts of the people, preparing the way for the one who would ultimately take away the sins of the whole world, who would change lives. He preached judgment. He preached judgment. Other passages um, reveal the, the way that, I mean, similar to, to Peter, just, hey, repent, <laughs> turn from your sin. Um, what a hard life. Some of you uh, in here might at times pride yourself in being that you're the one to speak truth into people's lives. And, uh, and sometimes that might be needed, and sometimes it might be uh, not so gracious, but a whole lot of truth. But God called this man to be a, a judgment preacher. Some prophets were given the job of judgment preacher, and they were lamenting prophets. They wept because people would not turn. But John had... Uh, the amazing opportunity to prepare the way of the Lord and people were responding to the messages about repentance and to turn from your sins. It's interesting to me as well that the Jewish people being called to be baptized. Now, remember what I said about baptism at the time. For a Jew now to be turning from their sins and their wickedness and to turn to Christ, and because of the forgiveness and remission of sins, they're being baptized in a way that how would they only know this type of baptism? It would be related to the really despicable and ugly Gentile over here. I mean, we can't, I think, uh, gra grasp the, the disparage between the two people groups. Um, and I didn't have time to spend, there's so much material to talk through regarding um, the prophecies related to that Jesus now coming as Messiah, that he's coming from this area of Galilee, 
Uh, he ends up being Jesus of Nazareth. Like that in itself was like, you, you remember the scripture, like how could anything good come from this place? Well, John is in this place going up and down this area of the Jordan and calling Jewish people and all people, but the Jewish people would now have to be so humbled in themselves to basically be identified as saying, I am no better than a Gentile. It was a big deal uh, for them to turn and to choose to humble themselves in a public display that would have been symbolic with a, a proselyte Gentile to Jew, Judaism at the time. I think it simplified real heart change on behalf of those people. But also at the very same time, we see for this to take place another exodus of the Jewish people. God leads them out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and out into the wilderness. Now, he's calling them out of Jerusalem, where the apostates were living, the religious elites that were uh, uh, ultimately the ones who end up killing Jesus in a few years. But it was absolute garbage happening in Jerusalem, and he calls them to re-exodus out and then to step into the waters uh, based on the forgiveness and their turning of their heart back to God. An interesting, an interesting uh, tension of, I'm calling you back out to the wilderness, back out to the desert in this heart change uh, when he called the children of Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea and out of the wilderness, uh, which they really struggled with in their hearts, didn't they? Verse 6 says, um, sorry, verse 5, all of Judea, including all of the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. There's that exodus out of Jerusalem that we see. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locust and wild honey. Now, if you wanted to look the part of a prophet, this is how you dressed. Uh, you may not know that he's not the first to dress this way. Um, and in fact, in Zechariah 13, the false prophets in Zechariah 13 were dressed like this. Why? Because if you're going to look like and try to be a copy of something and pull people into thinking that this is who you are, then you're going to dress like the, the OG, who would have been Elisha the Tishbite. The original, 2 Kings 1.8, Elisha was the trendsetter, uh, and you can look there to see that uh, it describes him as hairy, but it's the, it's the hair of the camel, uh, lest you're, you're being confused that he wore animal skin of camel. It was the hair that would have been woven into clothes, into a robe, so that when you looked at a person with a robe of camel hair on, it was just hairy. Like, how uncomfortable is this guy? But he is dressed the part. He's not a trendsetter. He's following in the footsteps of, of the prophet Elisha, who ultimately started that trend. If you want to look like a prophet, you look like Elisha. You put on the camel hair, camel hair robe or garment, and you put on the leather belt. Listen to what Luke 1.15 has to say. Write that down, Luke 1.15. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before the king, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the, uh, and the disobedient to the a- uh, attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is who John was. What did John have to say? John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. Mark 1, 7 now. Someone's coming soon who's greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. You know, it was the lowest of the low in the culture that would have removed the sandals of the master or whoever it was, the master's friends who came over. The lowest of the low. And John talking about his relationship His posture toward Jesus, the Messiah King. John 3.30 sums it up when John said, I must decrease, he must increase. I must become less, he must become more. I, I don't want my name mentioned in any of this. It's all about him. His name needs to be renowned, not mine. John never points to himself. In fact, through this, it's like he's saying, I'm not even to the level of the lowest when it's being face-to-face or in the presence of, in contrast to Jesus. I'm not even to the level of the lowest. Be careful when you, um, either yourself or are, are listening to uh, leaders, and it seems as though they're making much of themselves. Um, I think it probably, the spirit inside of you gives you pause when you hear some statements that are made or, or uh, dogma that's displayed, whatever, whatever the case. Um, Jesus said John was the best human to ever live until that point, right? And he was so humble so humble not even worthy to touch his shoes so much greater that i'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals verse 8 i baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit john is drawing a distinction between hey i can i can only affect you in an outward external way like the best I can do is to get you wet in water. It has this external picture. It's meaningful, but it, it certainly has its limits, right? Whereas he, he will baptize you with the spirit. I can only ex- influence or affect the external, whereas he is the source of life change internal influence will change you from the inside out we say it i know a lot around here that the spirit of god takes the powerful word of god and that seed that's implanted will will bring forth fruit in you you will become new and more glorious and glorious like jesus over time we talk about that here a lot and john this amazing humble man 
making way for him for Jesus is saying he is a life changer. He will baptize you with his spirit. Now, this is a, not something different than the Holy Spirit who comes to you at the point of salvation, regeneration. E- e- Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses of sin, but, but now because of, because of your faith, by faith, through grace, plus nothing else, Jesus, who is the, the person who makes the way possible to salvation, when you put your belief and your faith in Jesus, now you have the ability of, of spiritual life that happens because of the spirit of God. The same power that is in the resurrection is the same power that brings spiritual life in you. And that at that moment in time for you, the Holy Spirit filled you. This is not a different second blessing. This is not something that's different than the regeneration that happens at salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of that, that the Lord blesses you with at the point of salvation. Only Jesus, belief in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit can change you from the inside out. What do you do with Jesus when you meet him face to face? What is your response? Do you want him to change you from the inside out? Or do you reject and run, not being changed? Verse 9 says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee And John baptized him in the Jordan River. Jesus comes from Nazareth. Anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's Jesus, this Messiah King, coming from the exact area and place that uh, people are shocked by, but was prophesied he would come from. And here he's coming, and John's baptizing people who who, uh, have turned from their wicked ways and turned from their sins and been forgiven of those sins. And so now they're being baptized. And here comes Jesus. And you can look in, because Mark keeps moving. Mark keeps moving. Not a lot of detail here. But you look in Matthew chapter 3, another passage of Matthew 3. John didn't want to baptize Jesus. He's like, you need to baptize me. Why am I going to baptize you? This doesn't make any sense. But a quick synopsis, Jesus responds basically that, you need to permit this because this is, this is according to the Father has told me to do this, to fulfill righteousness is what Scripture says. The Father has, has said, you obey, this is the next step. John, permit this to happen because the Father has told me to do this. And so John baptized him. I mean, you're going to argue with the Son of God? You need to baptize me, John. Sometimes I argue about far lesser things in my life. How about you? John didn't want to, but he baptizes him. And in that baptism, it is a picture of the future death and burial and a resurrection that comes through the person of Jesus, this Messiah. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that we know so well, it says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become his righteousness, righteousness in him. Jesus, who had no sin then and never did, until the cross when he took it all upon himself, he's baptized prior to that moment, part to be obedient to Christ, to be obedient to the Father. Christ is being obedient to the Father. But there's also, it says to fulfill righteousness, 
in the picture of Jesus choosing to be baptized at that time, I believe it's a part of a picture of he goes to the cross, and according to that passage in, in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin. So, and, and there's that great exchange of our sin on him for his righteousness to exchange to us. Ultimately, that God treats him as if he lived our life and then treats us who have put our faith and belief in Jesus for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness. He now treats us as if we live Jesus' life. This amazing exchange. Jesus in that moment is baptized as a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection, something that we should have been at but are included in as being in Christ, being part of that baptism. In verse 10, it says, And Jesus came up out of the water. He saw the heavens splitting apart, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great, great joy. In Luke chapter 3, again, there's a lot of detail that is, is out there that you can read from the other Gospels. Luke chapter 3.21 describes that while he was coming up out of the water, it says that he was praying. While he was praying, he came up out of the water. So Jesus was completely immersed in the water. Okay? Uh, we, we've, we've talked about baptism before. It's been a while, but uh, baptizo, and, and the idea here is that there's not a sprinkling, there's not a squirt gun. He is fully immersed in the water, coming up out of the water, and while he, according to that passage, he is praying. He's in constant communion with God in this baptism, and now he's coming up out of the water. While he comes up out of the water, it says that the heavens were opened. John 1.32, John declares, I saw it. I declare to you, I saw with my own eyes. This isn't a vision that only happens to Jesus. The people who were around there were also a part of the visible and audible declaration to Jesus from God. John saw it. Mark uses a unique word in the Gospels to talking about this tearing of the heavens. It's the same word that was used in the description of the veil being torn from top to bottom when it was finished, Jesus was on the cross. The heavens were torn. They were ripped open. How interesting, Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rip or tear the heavens and come down. The heavens, the skies were ripped open. And at this time, God descends and God declares. There is an anointing of the Spirit and an affirmation of the Father. The Spirit comes down like a dove. It doesn't say that it was a dove. The question is more about how it came down than what it looked like coming down. You think about a dove coming down and it's a, a peaceful, gradual, gentle, Okay, the difference between anybody have a junko bird in their yard? Thump. That's how the junko bird lands. You ever watch that? Anybody who knows what a junko bird is? What? They're famous. And you didn't know it. Guess they're not that famous. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly. I met a junko bird once. It was my famous interaction that I had. 
It is just like that, folks. I mean, you watch that thing, and it's like, that's the noise. I'm like, and then when it, and the noise stops, and then it falls to the ground and goes, thump. It's ridiculous. The Spirit of God did not come down like a junko bird. <laughs> it came down like a dove. Okay? You might have a picture of a dove maybe in your Bible or seen pictures, but Scripture isn't saying that the Spirit came down looking like a dove, that it came down in the way that a dove would come down. How did it come? Isaiah 11, 1 says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from high. A dove. John 3, 34 says that God gave Jesus the Spirit, and this is a key phrase in this verse in John 3, 34, without measure, without measure, without limit. So God was given the Holy Spirit without measure. He is fully God and fully man with full of the Holy Spirit at the same time. So through the Holy Spirit, divine power came, understanding came, enlightenment came, revelation came, so that his human nature was under the full control of the Holy Spirit, so that everything that he did, he did it in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit came and filled him, and the Father at the time also declares in an audible voice, so God descended, and now God declares his love for the Son. You bring me such joy. I'm so glad that this phrase is in Scripture regarding the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Because it's so illuminating, so enlightening into the way that our relationships should be. I a long time ago, just asked God to, to, to begin to change my heart and the inside so that I would love the way God desires me to love. Like that is John 17 prayer, like that you would be united, but the unity and the way that the world will know that you're my disciples is by the way that you love. And here we see a picture of the Father declaring audibly for everybody, I am so proud and I love you, son. Some of you hear that and have heard that often from your parents, from those that are in authorities, the people that you love, that are, are ones who um, are, are shaping your life. I hope you have that in your life. Some of you have not. Some of you have never. Some of the authorities in your life have never spoken words of love or affirmation in that way. How sad, because that is not the plan that God had. He gave us and showed us the, 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 the picture of how we should copy him. I love the son. I am so proud of you, son. And so we've been invited in the book of Mark into this simple picture of, I would describe as the coronation of this new king. You've been to the divine inauguration of a new king, God's sinless son, anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, God's beloved and divine son who came to save sinners and establish a kingdom. This was kind of like his official coronation. At the beginning of the verse, verse 1, it begins. And then in verse 12, the spirit that filled him compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and the angels there took care of him. It 
this point, I'm not going to preach a whole message about the temptation of Christ. And like these other descriptions of this is what happened and this is what happened this is what happened again this is like this is what happened jesus was compelled by the holy spirit to go back out into the wilderness and there he was tempted by satan for 40 days there were wild animals there and the angels took care of him that son of god empowered by the holy spirit is somebody that you come face to face with today when you read the accounts of other gospels about Satan's tempting of Jesus. There's something as we end that I think is notable. When you read the passage related to Satan talking to Jesus about what he wants him to do, he says, you are the son of God. Turn those rocks into bread. You are the son of God. Throw yourself down. Satan, and in other passages in the Gospels especially, you see demons who know absolutely who this person is that they are standing face to face with. Satan and the demons know this is the son of God. Do you know him today? As you stand face to face with him, introduced to him, this is the beginning of his earthly ministry. What leads to him giving his life, shedding his blood for you and for me. The only way that we can have the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, is through the blood of Jesus. Today, he's standing before you. What do you do face to face with Jesus? Some of you have believed and known these things to be true and have put your faith in, in Jesus a long time ago. And here you are, all, however long later, and you're still face to face with Jesus because every day we get to choose what are we going to do with Jesus today? Are we going to change to be more like him, like Paul challenged us to do? Are we going to allow the word of God to impact us today to become more and more like the image of Jesus? Or like some of the people in the book that we will see as we unfold the chapters, they run, they're angry, they're fearful of him. But today I hope that you will follow him, you will be in awe of him, you will be amazed by him. This is just the very beginning of the first chapter. This book Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is just an unveiling of the person of Jesus. So I hope that you will do something wonderful with him and allow him to do something wonderful in you as we continue to go through the book of Mark. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for the person of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we see distinctly in this passage that we looked at in the baptism of Jesus today, the triune God, that are completely unified. Lord, empower us and in, 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 uh, interact with us in different ways. God, I pray today that as we think about the person of Jesus specifically, that, Lord, we would be humbled before him like John was humbled. John was a mover and a shaker, Lord, and, and, and yet he was so humble before you. I pray today, no matter what our personality is today, no matter what our struggles, our life is like today, that we would be that humble in the presence of Jesus. And that, Lord, in our humility, we would seek you. Lord, you promise that if we seek you, we will find you. So today, if there's some that are here that are skeptics, they don't know, they're agnostic, whatever the, the case may be, I pray that they would, would maybe... Pray that, that prayer of uh, 
just skepticism. Lord, if you're real, reveal yourself. And I pray that those that might be listening online today would come back and continue to see this Jesus of Nazareth unveiled. And then more clearly, every week, we see more and more clearly who he is. We know who he loves. He loves every one of us. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of change, a change of direction, a change of pace. Maybe we've just slowed down so much spiritually. Lord, today, help us to have a vigorous uh, uh, passion to follow after you, to go the way that you desire us to go and to change into who you desire us to change into. I pray as our family just gets together here and, and shares life together that we would, we would bear each other's burdens and would fulfill the law, the, that the law of love, that we would love each other enough today um, that we would really truly want to do life together, that we would step into that. Maybe it's uncomfortable. I, I don't know. Lord, help us to be who you've called us to be for each other in this body today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Would you stand and close and worship together?